what was fascinating, I think, on that adventure is when I worked in the corporate world, there was no way that I could probably get two of my customers who are in a similar industry to sit in the same room and share their data and share how they got those successful results. But in the nonprofit sector, we've been able to do that because with a few exceptions, most of them don't view them as being competitors. University on the East Coast doesn't believe it's really truly competing with a university on the West Coast when it comes to fundraising or food banks or other types of social good organizations. It's different. They are much more willing to share how they're doing things, but they need the benchmarking and the data to help them to see that, which um, has been an interesting journey for sure. Creating great products isn't just about product managers and their day-to-day interactions with developers. It's about how an organization supports products as a whole, the systems, the processes, and cultures in place that help companies deliver value to their customers. With the help of some boundary-pushing guests and inspiration from your most pressing product questions, we'll dive into this system from every angle and help you think like a great product leader. This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Product Thinking Podcast. Today, we're talking to Steve McLaughlin, who's a Vice President of Product Management at Blackbaud. Welcome, Steve. Hey, thanks for having me on the show, Melissa. Yeah, I'm really excited. So today we're going to talk all about product management in nonprofits. We're also going to talk a little bit of Steve's product management experience and dive into some insights around data-driven nonprofits and data-driven companies as well. So Steve, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into product management and maybe why you decided to start helping nonprofits? Yeah, it's been an interesting journey. So I spent the first part of my career in the consulting world, primarily on the, the digital and online side for a number of years. And when I came to Blackboard about 18 years ago, I started in professional services there, was doing consulting with some of our nonprofit customers. And one of the challenges I found myself running into at a software company was that the things that we knew were best practice or the things that we knew would help improve our customers' results the products weren't capable of doing. (laughs) And so there was sort of a mismatch there of things we knew we had tested or things that we knew were definite wants and needs from customers. We just weren't there yet on the product side. And I reached a point of feeling like the best way to ensure that success was to jump over the fence on the product management side and help drive more of what we were doing with different parts of the product set for those customers with that in mind. And now I've been doing that for well over 15 years. Part of that certainly has helped me, I think, always be much more customer first, sort of outside in mindset, because that's the world I came from. And I think that's always helped, especially when it comes to discovery or really trying to zero in, are we solving our problem or are we solving the customer's problem? I'm just, I think, naturally wired to start with the customer side and then figure out how we make that work for the business. Cool. So one of the topics we were kind of talking about before we started hitting record here was a question I get from a lot of people who work product management for nonprofits. And I'm not, actually, I've never worked with a nonprofit. So I feel like I can only guess 
what the answer is for some of these things, but I'd love to get your opinion on it because you've got so much experience, you know, working with them, helping them, trying to accelerate their business. So the question I get is how do we set product strategy? How do we think about OKRs and goals for nonprofits when we're not a purely revenue and cost driven business? We're out there for the greater good. Sometimes it takes a really long time to see results from those greater goods. So like, what do we do to really balance setting our strategies when it's not just as clear cut and we can't just measure revenue increase or cost decrease? So what would you say to that? How do you think about that with with your nonprofits? Yeah, those are great questions. I think that's something very early on I struggled with because from my perspective, the things I'm observing or seeing about customers is other than the tax status in the US or whatever it happens to be in, in other geographies, you have people, you have projects, you might not have shareholders, but you certainly have stakeholders. You have a board, you have all these ingredients. Like other than that special thing about the tax status piece, you operate just like a company in some ways. Although I think the difference being that ultimately the organization needs revenue to drive the mission and to support stakeholders versus a for-profit corporation, which may or may not have shareholders, but certainly that revenue is driving other types of, of activities. So to me, I think it's partly, certainly there are a lot of people in the nonprofit sector who are there because they're extremely passionate about the missions of the organizations. And that's very important. But that's where I think, especially I've seen this as both working with nonprofits over almost 20 years and and at one point being on a board of a nonprofit for a number of years, is it's a mindset versus probably a skill set thing where understanding we want to do good things in the world. And in order to do that, to fund that mission, you need to do four things. You need to get revenue, keep revenue, grow revenue, and reduce cost. And it took me probably 15 years to figure out that that's it. That's the list. It's those four things. And the revenue could be we run summer camps or we run a conference or we something that's fee for service. We're an aquarium or a zoo. Or we may do work that we get grants from foundations, still revenue. We get individuals who give us private support through fundraising. It's revenue. So I stick with the word revenue as opposed to money or whatever else because it, it's a source. As an organization, we need to get it. We need to keep it, you know, retain it. And that could be we keep people who come to our program and pay for something to keep doing that. We might have a grant through a foundation that allows us to run a program, and we need to show that we're delivering on the results because oftentimes that grant funding is contingent on showing, hey, we got a particular outcome or impact. We need to try and grow it if we can, and then also reducing cost because when you reduce cost, that's also growth. When you can reduce costs in an area, certainly that allows you to do more with the mission. And what I found is when I explain it in that way, it resonates a lot more versus trying to have a discussion about profit versus nonprofit and talk about P&Ls and gross margin, but just break it down to the real simple components and then showing some data around 
there's one and a half million nonprofits in the U.S. And the vast majority of the revenue is, you know, fee for service, government grants and contracts, and then fundraising. And then there's a small amount that's investment revenue. And just getting them to think about what's your mix? Where are you today? One of the challenges I see with with organizations of all sizes, and I think this could apply to companies too, is they often have, they're often over-indexed revenue from one particular source. We've got this big multi-million dollar grant and it's like, well, if that went away tomorrow, what would happen? Wow, we'd really be in trouble. Okay, so let's talk about how do we diversify that revenue mix. And that's not probably too different when having a discussion with a for-profit organization about their revenue mix of how much is coming from maybe retail sales versus online. Understanding and appreciating that revenue mix is really important. Just as a way of thinking about having that source of revenue, you know, helps drive more of the mission. And looking at it through that lens versus a purely tax status or some other jargon that we might attach to it. That's really interesting. There's one piece I wanted to hone in on this as well. And then I want to talk a little bit about like OKRs and goals. You mentioned our revenue and the way that we get revenue comes from many different things. We've got our grants, we've got donations, we've got fees for service. What does product management kind of look like in a nonprofit since it doesn't sound like to me, but I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, that a lot of the software is driving some of this revenue or is that a shift that people are making? So like, how do you think about your goals as a product manager and what do they tend to orient themselves around in a nonprofit compared to a for-profit company? Yeah, it can vary. I think of the word product in a very broad, (laughs) lots of things can be product. So as I noted, it could be we're a nonprofit organization and we run a set of educational programs for at-risk youth. And our product is that programming. And so in order to put on that programming, we need resources. We need people. We sort of need the trifecta. We need time, talent, and treasure. (laughs) We need time that people may be volunteering to participate in. We need talent. So we need to be able to bring people in who are experts or at least capable of running those programs. And we need treasure, right? We need the revenue piece that goes along with it. And so thinking about that. Now, I would say this is something I have definitely seen change in the past two decades, which is I'm seeing more nonprofit organizations starting to think about the programs they run or the mission-driven things that they do more like product. And I think that's partly because you've had a lot of people come from the for-profit sector into the nonprofit sector who have a bit of that background. And so I think there's certain charities where people come, they used to be, they literally used to be in retail or they used to be in something that was in the for-profit side and they've now gone and worked with a nonprofit organization. I think they bring some of that mindset of, hey, let's think about this program we run is, is a product, right? It's got to have certain characteristics to it. There's certain things that we would want to measure. The other area where it can certainly be product is there's examples of things like Donors Choose, where I can go online and I can buy school supplies for an entire school district or a teacher or something like that. There's a product there because there's an online experience. They've got to manage the inventory, if you will, of needs that are out there and things like that. And so it's interesting. For years, 
I've spent more time talking about trends and data and best practice in the nonprofit sector. But more recently, I've been doing more talks and things like that related to my actual day job, which is product management. For example, I've done a couple of sessions lately about OKRs for nonprofits. I'm introducing this concept because I've found them to be so useful, but introducing it. And it's been an interesting response because I think people are eager, regardless of where you work or what you do, of, wow, okay, this might be a better way that would help us achieve some of our goals. And so I think that's certainly positive. And there's a lot of things, certainly we, from a product management perspective, that is directly applicable if you're working in a nonprofit, in particular, those that run sort of larger programs. And in a lot of cases, those programs are grant funded or funded through private support. And nonprofits are looking for people who can help drive those forward to achieve their goals. That's cool. So it's like you're thinking more, it kind of reminds me a little bit of how we explain products in financial institutions or other institutions too, where it's like, you've got the overarching product is the thing you sell, like the credit card, but the software contributes to making sure that you can sell that well, and you can, you bring more value to it. Let's put it that way to those programs and help streamline it, help minimize costs, but also help provide more value in it. Am I getting that right with the way that you think about the programs? It's it's the overarching thing, but the product piece of it is the actual program you run, but product managers will come in there and help build software around it too. Yeah, it's both. I came to this realization years ago that product is the whole experience, especially in sort of the digital world we live in now, that it's not just, oh, I got this diskette and I installed it on a machine and that's the product. I think now you know, sort of the SaaS world that we live in and things like that, the whole experience is the product. And that then often is why you would think of it as an overarching, hey, we run this camp, we run this program, we run this conference. There's something that we do. We run a food bank. We accept blood donations. All those things could be, in a sense, it's a product. It's something that we're providing and there's value attached to it. And it may or may not always involve software, but thinking about it holistically is super important, I think. For sure. Okay. Yeah, that totally makes sense to me too. I think you just made some UX designers out there nervous though, because I feel like anytime I I explain like product is the entire experience and we get into this whole thing about like who owns it, is it UX design that owns the experience or is it product? And then we go back and forth. I don't know if you've had those tensions before either. Yeah. Always. (laughs) You can go down a rat hole on that debate about that. Oftentimes when I hear the O word, the ownership word, I often redirect of like, no one owns anything, right? It doesn't work that way. We work together as, as a triad or as a team on things. Now, there might be clear accountability, but yeah, I've tried to scrub. There's a bunch of words I've now tried to scrub from my vocabulary. An owner and owning is one of them because I think so much of good product, you know, UX, design, engineering, DevOps, product management, it's a team sport. And so you don't really own it. I think you have people who are accountable for things. And that's changed a lot too. I mean, when I first started out late 90s, you know, doing online 
e-commerce design, yeah, you could have one or two people who could do everything. We don't really live in that world anymore, or at least to do it at a particular level. I think it's a team sport. So making sure there's people who are accountable for things. And to your point about the UX piece, and I think this is probably because I came more from the design side of the world, that often is underappreciated. But again, if you think about the whole experience is the product, that design element is super critical. Certainly, we see this in the nonprofit sector as well, where you get into a lot of challenges around compliance, accessibility, where in some industries, those things might be optional, right? Like, do we really need to have it work for this? But for our customers, in many cases, it's part of the mission. So making things that um, can be used by other technology for those who might be visually impaired or other types of things, like that's sort of like now that's a (laughs) non-negotiable requirement because of who our users really are. But again, back to the point of design is a huge aspect of that, because if it's not simple and usable, all the cool stuff you're doing is kind of pointless, at least from my perspective. Yeah. Good philosophy. Did you know I have a course for product managers that you could take? It's called Product Institute. Over the past seven years, I've been working with individuals, teams, and companies to upskill their product chops through my fully online school. We have an ever-growing list of courses to help you work through your current product dilemma. Visit productinstitute.com and learn to think like a great product manager. Use code THINKING to save $200 at checkout on our premier course, Product Management Foundations. I think the ownership debate always really bothers me as well. I'm digesting it. I'm like, yeah, I agree. I'm sitting here nodding. It's with tricky, right? You said. When I'm ever in a discussion, either internally or conferences or talking with peers, and when someone uses, oh, well, maybe we need racy. Whenever I hear racy, I feel okay. like yeah. you're going to try and solve some other dysfunction with this framework. Because if you're talking about racy, what you're, you know, so responsible, accountable, consulted, informed. I feel like if you had a therapy session, what you'd really find out is there's trust issues. There's control issues. There's trust issues. And we want this artificial racy thing because I need to know what you're deciding to do, or I need to, I get to have a veto on something. And whenever I hear those frameworks brought up, I'm like, there's got to be a better way. (laughs) Let's figure out what's really going on here versus some framework that just, I think it sometimes can exacerbate the dysfunction in some ways. Oh yeah. And I feel like it's getting back into, let's just find the one throat to choke when something goes wrong, which is not a great cultural thing either. When you get into that, it's just, it, it usually ends up being a lot of people who don't understand their job functions, a lot of overlapping management problems, and then somebody looking to blame somebody when things go wrong, which all is very, very toxic at the end of the day. Yeah, no, absolutely. (laughs) Totally. And I think that's part of the product management discipline as well, which is I always reinforce to my team, whether they've just started or been with us for years on the team, that one of the key roles we serve is being a decision maker. Lots of our team members who are in different disciplines may have opinions, perspectives, expertise, but ultimately we drive a lot of that decision-making. So we, we can take all those inputs, but 
oftentimes we're, you know, and I you say, you know, get used to making decisions. You know, when people first come on the team, they say, well, you know, what should I 30, first 30, 60, 90 days? It's like get in the habit of making a decision every day, even if it's not a big one. Like you need to get very comfortable making decisions. And especially from people who maybe came from a background or a different area where that was not <laughs> part of their job. They, it's a muscle tone you've got to develop. And I think that is something that definitely falls into the product management wheelhouses, being able to make decisions and drive to those decisions as well. Yeah. And one of the things that you actually dug into quite a bit in your past was helping to make better decisions by bringing data-driven decision-making to like nonprofits. I saw that you taught nonprofit management at Columbia University in New York. You've written a book on data-driven nonprofits. What were you observing that led you to get into this, to start talking about data and analytics and nonprofit? Like what was happening at the time that you started researching this? And and what have you found since you've been published a book and started teaching it more? Yeah, there's, there's two sides to this coin. So from a personal perspective and also professionally. So personally, up until that point, which was you know five or six years ago, I'd spent my entire career mainly in the digital side. And data, analytics, AI, although they've been around a long time, was really, it was starting to become a real thing. And I thought to myself, if I remember back to the beginning of sort of the online world, there was a window of opportunity where if you got into it early, you could really do some really interesting things, but you sort of had to get your timing right. And I really felt like there was something happening that AI analytics, a lot of this stuff was becoming much more mainstream, much more accessible. And so that was an area I had a lot of interest in spending another, I don't know, 10,000 hours on or something like that. But when I started to dig into, well, how were nonprofit organizations using data or in many cases not using data, a lot of my research just uncovered there wasn't a book or a manual or any really a lot of guidance for organizations who raised their hand and said, we know we need to be more data-driven or maybe data-informed, but we're really struggling to get there. And so that was sort of the impetus for the book. The book did really well. You know, it's interesting that a book about data in the nonprofit sector gets to number one on Amazon is there must be something going on there. And then um, the folks at Columbia said, hey, you know, we've got a graduate program in nonprofit management, but we don't have a course about data. Could you come help us put that together and teach it for a couple of semesters? And so it started to snowball. But I learned so much along the way, which was that and probably maybe this is the biggest thing I learned that it's not about data quality or data health, although that's important. It's not about the underlying technology, although that's important. It's not about how many data scientists you have or don't have, although that may or may not be important. That so much of being more data-driven is cultural. And what I really zeroed in on with the book was talking to a, a sort of a diverse set of nonprofits to understand what was it that they were doing that allowed them to be more successful than others with data? And a lot of it came down, there was a cultural element. Yes, they had some tech or yes, they cared about data quality or something like that. Maybe in some cases, they actually had a chief data officer, very rare, they did. But it was a cultural aspect. And over time, 
one of the reasons why I do believe certainly data is so important in the nonprofit sector is the mission of these organizations is so critical. And in many cases, it fills a critical gap in society that we need, right? And that society benefits from. But we need to be able to measure whether or not we're being effective. And I think a lot of this comes into a discussion about outcomes versus outputs, which is an area I think been fascinated in for years, which is driving more of that outcome and impact conversation versus, hey, can you add this widget in the product so we can do more outputs and pushing customers and discovery of like, well, why do you want to do that? Why? And trying to actually get to, well, what's the outcome you're trying to achieve here versus being very output focused? So, and I think data is a key part of that, of being able to understand what are we doing? What impact is it having? And how might we improve as well? The other thing I think that became really interesting is I got to work with a gentleman by the name of Chuck Longfield, who is Blackboard's chief scientist, but he's someone who'd spent 40 years in the nonprofit sector with data. Chuck probably has seen more data about nonprofits than anyone maybe in the world. And he taught me so much about the value of benchmarking. So once you understood the basics of metrics, like do we measure a thing and can we do that repeatedly? Then really what you want to get to is benchmarking. Because what I want to know is how are we doing, not compared to last year or last month, whatever, but how are we doing relative to our peers? Because that's when you really learn like, wow, what's that organization doing where they're able to retain so many more of their donors than we are? Why are they able to get that one fundraising channel to work so much better. And you can't do that unless you're doing the benchmarking. And what was fascinating, I think, on that adventure is when I worked in the corporate world, there was no way that I could probably get two of my customers who are in a similar industry to sit in the same room and share their data and share how they got those successful results. But in the nonprofit sector, we've been able to do that because with a few exceptions, most of them don't view them as being competitors. University on the East Coast doesn't believe it's really truly competing with a university on the West Coast when it comes to fundraising or food banks or other types of social good organizations. It's different. They are much more willing to share how they're doing things, but they need the benchmarking and the data to help them to see that, which um, has been an interesting journey for sure. Yeah, that's really fascinating because I know that that's such an issue coming from corporate. Like you said, I can never get benchmarks on a lot of stuff. You have to go through tons of research or find a study that somebody did by surveying like a ton of companies or get into Bain, you know, or McKinsey reports or Forrester or something like that to find some of the benchmarks. And even then it's hard to tell what's real and what's not. So it's really interesting that the nonprofits are so open and they don't really see themselves competing against each other. So they'll all share with that. Yeah, it, it's been interesting to see that because, again, I never would have saw that in work I did previously. You know, you, you never get Coke and Pepsi in the same room to compare their sales in <laughs> California oh, yeah. and which doing whatever. But these organizations are willing to do it. But I, I think that's where technology is an enabler that makes that possible, right? The fact that you could do that analysis, that you can do, you can do true apples to apples comparison. It's an eye opener for some organizations, because it's been interesting to do that with organizations who've never done it before. And they're like, wow, I mean, you can do this? I mean, like, 
you can tell me how I'm doing relative to these thousand other organizations. It's like, yeah, it's just, it's math and some statistics. <laughs> but that's an example of like focusing on the outcome, not the output, that technology can do all of these things versus the expectation of, I think for some organizations is, wow, we couldn't do that ourselves. And like, well, the good news is you don't have to do that yourself. A lot of the technology can do this for you so that you can use it as a way to inform your decision-making. It's interesting. You're diving back into the outcomes and I wanted to touch on that too. We talked about it a little bit, but I want to go a little deeper on it. When you're in a nonprofit or government or anything like that, right? You've got these outcomes that are pretty lofty. American Cancer Society wants to cure cancer and help save a lot of people. How do you measure, and especially when you're setting OKRs, like you mentioned, how do you measure that you're making progress towards these things? And what do you recommend for people who are trying to stay true to that mission and those outcomes, but they got to make sure what they're doing is actually making progress towards it? Yeah, it's probably not too different for an organization or a software company or a product management team, which is you know, have that clear vision, mission, purpose. And it's okay for that to be lofty because the intent there is to set the direction, right? This is the impact that we're trying to have on the world. And it could be, we want to erase homelessness or we want to cure a particular disease. But then I think once you get to sort of that strategy or, you know, outcome OKR level, it's about breaking it down into, okay, well, what would be the first step that we could take that shows we're making progress towards that particular goal. And I think that's the way to think about it is, is breaking that down, right? Just like you've got a product vision, which may be lofty and you don't know how you're going to figure out all the things yet, but then you break it down into pieces and you figure, well, what would we have to do first? Or, you know, what would have to be true in order for this to move its way forward? And again, I think there's an element there that it's this relationship between using data to help you measure progress against those particular outcomes. And this was a trick that I learned when I was writing the book and interviewing people, which is there was a common theme, which was when you want to you know, either start using more outcome measurement or you want to do anything that's data related, you don't try and pick the biggest, baddest, complicated problem in the organization. Like that's a recipe for failure. But you can't pick something that no one cares about either. And so I think what I found was it's the Goldilocks problem. You need something in the middle, right? Big enough that people would care that you found a way to improve it, but not so big that everyone would care <laughs> that you're attempting to do something. That's often the balance. You can have those very lofty goals and ideals, but you know, you've got to pick where do you want to start and, you know, the challenge there is getting it just right. You pick something too small and no one cares and it doesn't pick up steam. Or you pick something too controversial or something that's just too big for the organization to want to go through that change that it never moves forward. So you're trying to, I think, strike that balance with those, with those particular measures or outcomes that you're trying to run. Yeah. I've seen that a lot when I've done transformations too. Like just biting off everything at once is not going to work. You got to start small somewhere, just show some impact and then figure out how to get there. I guess when you're choosing this and you're looking for those right outcomes as well, I'm curious, like going back to what we talked about at the beginning with the revenue and cost part, right? You got to manage towards those things. How do you balance keeping the long-term outcomes and mission of the company in play 
and making sure that you're not just over-optimizing for revenue or cost without those in mind. Like, what are practices that you've seen work really nicely in non nonprofits to help keep everybody aligned, but focused on the overall outcome? And what do you do to like set and deploy strategy in those cases? I mean, I think the things that I've seen work really well, whether people realize it or not, they're channeling their inner Jeff Bezos, which is the whole, we're very firm on vision and very flexible on details, which I, I have found is a great way to think about it, right? Have that big, audacious, bold mission vision about the change that you want to make in the world and make that, whether you want to call it your North Star or something else, but everyone in the organization knows what that is with clarity and simplicity that if they ran into anybody on the street, that they could explain what it is that that organization's doing and those from a vision, mission, uh, purpose perspective. But then it's, okay, now let's get into the details and it's okay if the details might change over time. Let's think about how we might want to tackle this or the things that we would need to do over time, right? Do we have to have certain resources in place? What type of programs might we have to run? And just checking yourself, as long as the work that individuals or teams or groups within an organization are doing can connect back to that higher purpose, that vision, mission, purpose is great. I'm a bigger fan of it being able to connect rather than top down, bottom up. If you can't go straight up and down and see how it works, then I don't think that works well with teams at any scale. It's more of, can I connect the dots about what we're doing to those particular areas. And then certainly measuring it to know whether or not we're being effective or not. But don't you see work with the top-down, bottom-up approach? What's that? I thought you just mentioned you don't see it work well with teams at any size with the top-down, bottom-up. I mean, maybe it's a cultural thing, but I think in my career, I've seen a lot of struggles with implementing big strategic plans and other things when it's very top down, I suppose you can be guilty of the other, which is entirely bottom up. Oh, yeah. That's pretty rare, but it's the top down part, I think, stifles a lot of innovation, curiosity with the team. Well, Steve, this has been incredibly enlightening and I learned a lot. I always felt unsure when people ask me about nonprofits because I've never really worked at one, but you helped confirm some of my assumptions about managing towards revenue and costs and keeping the big outcomes in line and trying to use data there. So I think there's a lot that we can learn and help nonprofits out there become a little bit more product-driven, help establish their product management practices in there. So if people want to learn more from you or learn more about you know data-driven nonprofits or how you do product management, where can they find you? Sure. You can find me on probably LinkedIn, Steve McLaughlin, or on Twitter, S at S. McLaughlin. I'm willing to bet if you Google my name and nonprofit, you'll probably find some things as well. Cool. And then where can we buy your book? Amazon or wherever books are still being sold. Cool. And it's called Data-Driven Nonprofits? Yep. Data-Driven Nonprofits. Yep. Great. So definitely go check that out. Thank you so much, Steve, for being on here again. And for those of you listening, make sure that you subscribe to the Product Thinking Podcast if you've liked this. We have new episodes out every Wednesday, and we will see you next time.